You're listening to a podcast from Blogging Heads TV. Hi, Stephen. Hi, Bob. How are you doing? Doing well. How are you? Uh, I'm doing okay. Uh, can't complain. There are uh, some unsettling world events that are relevant to the conversation we're about to have. Let me introduce this first. Uh, I'm Robert Wright. This is The Wright Show, available on both streaming video and via audio podcast. You are Stephen Ward. You're a professor at Cambridge University in England. Um, you've written a book that we're going to talk about called Status and the Challenge of Rising Powers. Um, and uh, does it have a subtitle? No subtitle. No subtitle, because it's 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 a clear and explicit and descriptive uh, title. This was, this was my this was my editor. Oh, really? Yeah, that, that, <laughs> that's interesting. Um, well, we'll we'll uh, if we have time to, to do a shop talk about publishing, we can do mm. that at the end. But I think first we want and your and your editor is at, at Cambridge University Press, right? He's the, the yeah, the guy at, at Cambridge University. Yeah. Press. So. Um, your book, I want to talk about various aspects of it. Uh, it. It's relevant to various contemporary issues. And then there are historical cases in the book that I hope we'll have time to talk about. But I wanted to start out talking about events that are unfortunately unfolding in Ukraine. As we speak, you know, a full-fledged invasion is underway uh, it's 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 uh, only you know no more than uh, no more than 24 hours old as we record this, but it's pretty clear, you know, we're talking about a war here. Um, now, a common view of international relations that's very relevant to the Ukraine thing, but is not your view, and I want to contrast your view with this is realism. Okay, mm. so according to realism. The uh, you know we should view the behavior of states as you know they're they're rational actors they have their national security interests and you should appraise their behavior that way and I should say that realists you know have a not bad track record with respect to Ukraine in the sense that kind of maybe one of the best known realists John Mearsheimer has been warning for a long time do not do the NATO expansion thing it's going to drive them crazy and not maybe in so many words but you know. Uh, so they, um, they haven't done badly, but you, uh, and I'm sure you attribute certainly some, some significance to considerations of national security, but you have a, uh, this really interesting take that I think is relevant, not only to what is happening in Ukraine, but to some much, much discussed, uh, features in the run-up to it, uh, features of the run-up to it, including uh, Vladimir Putin's presentation of self, kind of, I mean, you know, his speech not long before kind of freaked people out. And I think people would say, look, this isn't the real, this, the realists cannot accommodate this. This guy is like, you know, he is not coolly moving pieces on a chessboard here. He seems pretty wrought up over this. Mm. So, um, I just would like to start out, um, by asking you, and we haven't talked about this. I don't I don't really know exactly what your views are, but I assume you've been processing this whole thing in a slightly different way because you emphasize and tell me if I've got this right, uh, that status kind of the, the, the status psychology of states matters. States mm -hmm. like people want respect uh, and 
if they don't get it, that can affect their behavior. I, I, I so I think why don't you start by just fleshing out the the argument in the book, just just briefly to make sure we've got that part right, and then we can apply it to Russia and Ukraine. Yeah, thanks, Bob. Yeah, so I think you have you have it basically right. Although I um, so I'm gonna. I, here's what I'll do. I'll, I'll sort of broadly talk about how status might matter for foreign policy. The argument in my book is, um, I think it might apply to uh, what's going on with Russia and Ukraine right now. Then again, I'm very cautious about, right, it's ongoing and, mm-hmm. and you know, it'll be decades before we're able to actually figure this out. Um, so, okay, so you, you're basically right here, right? So so the, uh, the argument in the book uh, is rooted in social psychology, um, specifically largely in social identity theory. And the idea here is that people care about the status of groups with which they identify. So, you know, I care about the Oakland A's and I care about the San Francisco 49ers. uh, And uh, we also care about uh, the states or countries that we identify with too, and we care about their status. Uh, And we might think that leaders especially care about the status of countries that they uh, uh, that they that they identify with, but domestic audiences do too, at least certain domestic audiences. Uh, and uh, there's a massive body of, of research um, uh, going back decades uh, that suggests that these kinds of considerations influence foreign policy. Um, they can prompt states to behave aggressively. Um, they can, as I argue in my book, prompt states to sort of reject uh, the uh, sort of foundations of international order very broadly in ways that don't really make much sense um, from a, a kind of rational realist perspective. Um, and uh, this broad idea, right, that status concerns um, influence foreign policy is actually a pretty common way of understanding um, Russian foreign policy, evolution of Russian foreign policy going back to the 90s. Um, now, two caveats. Uh, one is that explaining is not justifying, right? So I, this is uh, something that I think is important to say because um, right now, especially if if you're sort of explaining what Putin is doing, you might be accused of justifying it. That's not I, what I've I'm noticed, doing. I've noticed that. Believe have me. you? Have yes, I, yes, I can believe it. Um, so that's not what's happening here, right? I, I just think it's valuable to understand. Um, uh, the second caveat is that I don't. Uh, study Russian foreign policy. Um, other people do, though, and I, I have certainly read uh, a, a very large number of people who uh, are experts on Russian foreign policy and um, and have made this argument that status concerns uh, are at the center of um, uh, of the evolution of sort of Russian belligerence over the last couple of decades. So um, this. Uh, argument takes a variety of forms. It typically goes back to the sort of couple of years after the fall of the Soviet Union. Um, And the argument basically is um, not that uh, not that Russian elites like Putin want to restore the Soviet Union, but rather that they're interested in restoring the role that the Soviet Union played in the world and especially its status uh, as a superpower, as an equal to the United States. Um, and uh, sometimes this argument um, makes reference to missteps, foibles um, 
uh, that uh, the United States and its allies and partners made during during especially the 90s. So NATO expansion, you know, I, I'm, I, I actually want to put a pin in this and talk about Mearsheimer's argument in, in a bit, kind of contrast that a little bit more. Um, but uh, uh, the argument is that NATO expansion infringed on a sort of sphere of influence that had been Russian historically. Uh, and that was a signal that Russia was not sort of being taken seriously as a great power anymore. Um, uh, Kimberly Martin um, argues that more significant than NATO expansion actually was NATO military interventions in the Balkans um, that uh, proceeded without <laughs> consultation with the with the Russians. Kos uh, Kosovo and, in particular in 1999, I would think the Bosnia intervention that's right. had the the uh, the support of the. UN Security Council, so Russia could have right. vetoed that if they had wanted. Right, but 1999, very significant mm -hmm. um, um, because this is this, uh, again, sort of a historically Russian sphere of influence that uh, that the US and NATO are intervening in um, without uh, Russian cooperation. Uh, and, um, and so the idea, you know, the argument basically is, again, various versions of this argument, but um, that the sort of liberal reformers, people like Andrei Kazarev, um, are disadvantaged politically by um, these uh, sort of assertions of Western primacy, uh, and that contributes to their sort of defeat uh, and the um, uh, and the renewed rise to power of sort of nationalists. Right. Okay. So that let me let me uh, let's. I want to get into that dynamic uh, eventually, but l let's back up a little. And just when you said. Uh, status considerations can lead to aggressive behavior or to a rejection of the world order. I assume you mean kind of generically when states feel they're not getting the, the, the status they believe they deserve right. is not being recognized by other states. That's right. And so in my in my book, I distinguish between sort of status dissatisfaction which is where you think you have a lower status than you deserve and you're going to work to try to improve your image uh, to, to sort of gain recognition uh, in, in uh, other states' eyes of that higher status. And status immobility, which is when you've been trying to do that and you're getting signals that it won't work. Uh, status dissatisfaction leads to status-seeking behavior um, so this depends on the context, but can involve sort of right during the late 19th century, early 20th century, building an empire to try to sort of write. This is the Japan case study where Japan sort of trying to sort of count as a Western great power. Um, but the dimension, uh, the sort of salient dimension of comparison can shift because these things are socially constructed. Um, status immobility uh, actually leads to a kind of uh, a kind of. Um, uh, rejection of uh, the idea that you can gain status mm -hmm. uh, and rather to um, kind of behavior that is aimed at uh, signaling rejection uh, and defiance of mm -hmm. the international order, not necessarily instrumentally, right, um, uh, for domestic political purposes because it's emotionally satisfying. Um, when you say not necessarily instrumentally, you, you mean not necessarily to influence the behavior of other states, but right. in response to either domestic political incentives. In other words, this this kind of uh, acting out behavior will play well with your domestic audience or because you personally emotionally right. uh, feel insulted. You are the leader right. of the state and, and you feel insulted. 
Now, uh, I would think Russia doesn't quite exactly fit. Uh, now I've forgotten the label of the second category, but in any event, it, it's it's. Uh, I mean, it has been seeking kind of status preservation in a mm. sense, and 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 yet has seen uh, its status in the eyes of the world decline. I'm talking about since the end of the Cold War. Now, does that that doesn't exactly fit either of your models, does it? No, I mean, the book, right, the book is about rising powers, right? Okay. And, and so Russia is a sort of declining power. Now, the similar dynamics might 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 apply. OK. Um, and I would I would I would say that I would say that I guess I would disagree with you a little bit. Uh, I don't think that Russia has been seeking the maintenance of its status uh, so much as the restoration of its status. OK. Um, and uh, let's not overdraw this comparison, but. Uh, there is a case in the book um, of a state sort of seeking the restoration of its status. Now, it's in the context of a material uh, uh, increase in, in capabilities. Uh, that's Weimar Nazi Germany, right? So it's this sort of reaction to defeat in World War One, right? That leads to this sort of uh, revanchism, right? That might be more like uh, what Russia is, but I, but I still, you know, there's a reason that the Russia case isn't in the book, and it's because the Theory scoped to rising powers, and Russia doesn't really count as a rising power. Okay, so uh, you know, to that extent, um, you know, you should—I'm sure—you want to qualify your remarks about Russia uh, with the fact that you haven't you haven't written a whole book about it. But um, it did, you know, Putin's speech got—I I mean, clearly, I, first of all, I think you made an interesting distinction earlier that he doesn't necessarily want to restore the Soviet Union because some people are saying he does that, you know, it's it's Hitler level expansionism all over again. And mm. who knows which NATO country is on the list and so on. Um, you're saying it's not necessarily that, but probably he would like to see a, 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 the level of respect that had been accorded the Soviet Union. He wants a mm -hmm. Soviet level of status. Mm -hmm. And um the uh, so his speech, you know, was it just uh, even uh, Russians commented on how emotional he was as if he was taking it personally. That's very consistent with your model and and, and not so much with the model of a, a realist or at least a realist would have trouble accommodating everything about that speech, I, I think, including the tone. Would that be your view? I think that. A realist might might say one of two things. Uh, one would be that it doesn't matter because talk is cheap. So why are we paying attention to what people say in public? Mm -hmm. And the other would be maybe there's some strategic benefit in terms of signaling. Mm -hmm. um, you know, uh, he's not a realist, but uh, there's a guy named Todd Hall at Oxford who's written about emotional diplomacy. Right. So it might be that sort of anger is useful diplomatically. Right. Um, again, right. I would, I would, I would need, I, 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 I don't think we can make a judgment right now, but I, but I think what you're saying is quite plausible, right? That, mm -hmm. that this is reflective of an actual emotional reaction. And I guess, uh, I, I mean, in, your model has somewhat different predictive implications, right? Like, you know, when people get emotional about status, you know, and we don't, again, we don't know what's going on in his head to what extent it was performative. But you're saying it can happen that leaders just mm -hmm. get emotionally. They personally identify with the, with what they see as an insult and they react that way. Well, we know that people in real life can can uh, can really lash out, can can depart from us from a cool, calculating 
framework. So, um, and you know, when you look at the magnitude of the invasion as to the extent that we can even discern it now, uh, it, it seems to me, you know, well, I, I don't know. You tell me. Uh, how, 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 do you, how do you process that? I mean, one expectation had been, well, he goes into the, the Donbass, maybe pushes the borders of those regions to the extent, the nominal extent of those two provinces, which would be a, a lot of fighting, mm. but it wouldn't be, uh, you know, uh, landing by sea and, and, you know, in a couple of places that apparently troops have landed. Um, are, are, how, how is this looking to you? Oh, I mean, it, it looks a lot bigger than that. And, and I'll tell you, I think that this is where you're going. Um, I, I, I think that there's a tendency, I have noticed a tendency to uh, attribute to Putin a, a sort of level of strategic genius um, and calculation that I'm not sure is warranted. And as, as late as a couple of days ago, uh, you know, when he recognized um, uh, the Donbass, uh, people were sort of talking about how this is so smart. Um, it's sort of typical salami slicing. The scope of the invasion definitely looks bigger. Um, now, uh, I, 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 I cannot pretend to know what's going to happen, but I wouldn't be surprised if we find out um, when we actually get to study this in more depth that this was not well planned out, uh, that it, it looked fairly obviously like a strategic error and that there wasn't really a good sort of um, uh, really a good understanding of how this was going to go. And that would suggest an, an error in the sense of the international consequences eventually. Or, 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 or I mean, or, you know, so if, if this is the prelude to like a full scale invasion and sort of regime change, right. Which is what I, I, I read, you know, when I, when I read denazification, I don't know how else to understand that than that. Wasn't it deco to, wasn't de Oh, well, he said both. He said decommunization. Uh, uh, that was, but see, well, I, we don't need to get too, too deep in the woods, but that was interesting no. because to me that suggested, I want the Russian speaking parts of you, the mainly Russian speaking parts yeah. of Ukraine, because he was saying it was the communists who had glued together this, yeah. this false state. But, uh, but you're right. If he has said, has he said denazification? He did. Yeah. He did. I mean, I mean, we should say that as we speak, and this won't be posted, uh, uh, quite immediately, but uh, the 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 invasion is large in the sense that there have been airstrikes kind of everywhere. Now, so far as I know, those are on military targets, and so that doesn't necessarily mean that we're going to see troops everywhere. I continue to doubt uh, we will, but uh, by the time uh, this airs, I may look like a fool for saying this. But uh, but in any event, uh, why don't you proceed? Uh, with um with what you were you were saying well all i was gonna all i was gonna say was you know again i i, I agree with you I, I i don't know where this is going right it, it could be uh that it's going to be over quickly and it's really just sort of uh about the donbass or it could be bigger if it's bigger um i don't necessarily think so so uh what i meant when i said uh, could turn out to be a strategic error yeah maybe but sort of it's certainly in terms of the international reaction but um what are you going to do if you occupy ukraine right um, uh, you're going to, you're sort of going to be facing a, a, a massive insurgency and I'm not sure how well that's going to go. Mm -hmm. Um, so that, that seems like biting off more than, 
more than you'd want to chew. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I mean, it could go, go bad, could go bad in a, in yeah. a bunch of ways. I, I agree. That would be a, a, a big mistake, I think. And, and that's the kind of thing you might attribute in, in your paradigm to his having personally gotten personally involved in the status issue. Possibly at a, at a psychological level. It's mm -hmm. like the world has been insulting him personally in some sense in, in his mm -hmm. mind, which is not unusual. Uh, for, it's not unusual for leaders to identify with the, with the state. I'm sure the identification can be stronger if uh, it's not a state where you, you have a new leader every four or eight years and a guy is, yeah. you know, gets kind yeah. of used to it. Um, mm -hmm. Okay, so that's interesting. Now, what about the whole, uh, the run-up to this? Uh, the, the, how, how has that been looking to you? Uh, of course, you know, to provide a little historical perspective, there were people who warned in, in, the, in the 90s, including George Kennan and, and Jack Matlock, who had been the ambassador to the Soviet Union, that NATO expansion was a huge mistake and could ultimately lead to a reaction uh, by Russia that would be very unfortunate. Um, on the other hand, realists were saying that, uh, you know, because they say, look, it's a national security threat to, the, to Russia. If you put them, you know, yourself in their shoes, you wouldn't tolerate uh, what you consider an adversary's military this close to your borders. Um, I I would guess that you you know there there are similar cautions might arise from your point of view, but they'd be they'd be different in in how mm -hmm. it, right there, at some level there's a difference. What what is the difference in your? Yeah. So okay. So so first I just want to note a, a couple of other notable names who warned against NATO expansion. Um, right. And again, I think this is important because uh, we often sort of hear uh, about the appeasers, right? And th these are just doves. No, Robert McNamara, right signed the public letter to the Clinton administration. And Paul Nitza uh, was also warning against NATO expansion. These are not mm -hmm. dubs, right? Mm -hmm. Paul Nitza was the architect of the massive buildup in uh, defense spending after the Korean War. And Robert McNamara, of course, oversaw the escalation in Vietnam. So there's a whole sort of range of, uh, of people that were warning for various reasons that NATO expansion was not a great idea. Um, now, on the, on the realist argument, I mean, I, I think that uh, both of these sort of dynamics might be working, right? So it might be that this is, that NATO expansion is both a sort of understood as a material threat, a physical threat to, to Russian security, and that it is an encroachment on um, what uh, some Russians have seen as a, a right that should be accorded to them by virtue of their status. Those mm -hmm. can both be those can both be working in the same direction. Uh, and that, you know, that's, you know, part, part, partly, you know, why, why you carefully think about case selection when you're writing an academic study is to try to figure out how you can, how you can distinguish between these dynamics. Um, I mentioned that I have some, so I have some disagreements with, with, with Mearsheimer. I mean, I, I think um, Mearsheimer's, his argument is pl plausible, right? I, I think the you know the notion that NATO expansion has driven uh, uh, sort of Russian belligerence is is certainly plausible, but it's interesting. And I know you've talked to Mearsheimer at least once. Mm -hmm. um, uh, I don't think that this is entirely consistent with the tenets of offensive realism, right? Because if you read Tragedy of Great Power Politics, that's what his, the theory that, that that's uh, his, his book. 
his his famous book from 2000. Right. Uh, a very well-written book. Um, and Mearsheimer is a, a wonderfully clear speaker and writer. Um, in some ways too clear, right? Because these kind of inconsistencies become obvious. But what what tragedy of great power politics suggests is that is that variation and insecurity is really insignificant as a driver of foreign policy, right? That the security dilemma is kind of constantly severe. Um, states- can, we, can we pause and explain the security dilemma? Yeah, the sorry. The so the, <laughs> that, that's the idea that, uh, you know, things we think of as defensive and a good example are these uh, uh, Anti, the anti-missile defenses we've installed in Poland, 100 miles from the Russian border. Now, we think of that as defensive uh, uh, because they intercept missiles. And in fact, we say they're directed toward Iranian missiles, although I think obviously from Russia's point of view, it doesn't escape your attention that they could be directed at Russian missiles. And even if we do think of them as defensive, they have offensive implications because if we mm. were going to attack Russia, they would be very useful in neutralizing the retaliation. Mm-hmm. So, so the security dilemma is the idea that one state does something just to shore up its security, but that, but that that is, uh, and it doesn't have to be a misperception on the other side. Uh, you know, they don't right. misunderstand the motivation. Right. They they may just go, well, okay, fine. But you realize that if that if there's a hostile regime in your country in two years they now are more of an offensive threat to us by virtue of your defensive preparations and so on. And so it goes back and forth. And, 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 and the, so the other side responds with their defensive slash offensive preparations and so on. So there's this cycle and, and the security dilemma drives these, these arms races. So now- That's pretend. right. Now, important to understand, there's, there's two takes on the security dilemma. There's mm-hmm. the defensive realist take, right? The defensive realist take is that the Severity of the security dilemma varies according to of different factors like geography, right? If you're an island state, then you're going to face weaker security dilemma dynamics than a continental state. Um, technology as well, right? Uh, back in the 90s, there was this uh, sort of wildly popular literature about the offense-defense balance, basically the idea that some weapon systems are intrinsically offensive and other weapon systems are intrinsically defensive. And so if that distinction is clear, then a security seeker can signal that they're a security seeker by investing in defensive weapons, and then the security dilemma won't operate, right? Mearsheimer's take, offensive realism, is different. Mearsheimer's take suggests that because of anarchy, uh, no no state can ever feel secure, right? Unless right. it's- In other words, unless- there is no world government, world police. That's what he means by anarchy. That, that's right. That's what he means by anarchy. Because of anarchy, uh, regardless of the state of military technology or geography, well, geography is a special case. But let's not talk about geography too much because uh, it's, it's not relevant to Russia. Um, um, but Mearsheimer's argument is uh, that uh, the, the severity of the security dilemma does not vary, that it, it is constantly severe. Uh, and this is what leads him to, to suggest um, that states will take opportunities to expand and expand and expand until they become regional hegemons. That's the Mm -hmm. only time you're secure, right? Now, note, right? Notice that the implication there is that NATO expansion shouldn't really have changed Russia's threat perceptions, right? Um, That what what, uh, Russian foreign policy should be responsive to is variation in its relative capabilities, 
which means regardless of what's going on with NATO expansion, as Russia gets wealthier and more powerful, it's going to uh, uh, behave more as a revisionist, um, regardless of sort of NATO expansion, right? So uh, again, what I, does that make sense? I'm not sure. I may have I may have missed something. So you're uh, when you say variations in, so you say that uh, the, what you respond to is how things are different today than they were yesterday. Is no, 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 no. Sorry. So so according to according to Mearsheimer, right? According to yeah. Mearsheimer's offensive realism. <clears throat> states do not react to state, states foreign policies do not react to their perceptions of whether other states pose threats right because they just kind of assume that all states pose threats right, right. what drives variation in the quality of foreign policy is how no. powerful right. you are right? right so as you get more powerful then you get more expansive right yeah um and so what that means is that a, a an explanation for Russian foreign policy, or say the increase in the belligerence of Russian foreign policy, that is consistent with the logic of offensive realism, would focus more on changes in the relative balance of capabilities between Russia and the United States than it would on the expansion of NATO. So you would, so yeah, I see. So in that in that scenario, if Russia's rel relative power declined, and, and this is tricky because, you know, with a lot of nuclear weapons, there's a, at some level it never, it never does. But, but, yeah. but in conventional terms, maybe it has its own. But anyway, you're saying that, that he should say that as Russia's relative power declines, it just accepts the fact and has correspondingly uh, lesser ambitions for regional dominance. Well, it, its ambitions maybe don't change, but its ability to act on them does. And because it's a rational actor, it, yes. it recognizes that in his mind. Exactly. Yes. Okay. Yes. And you're saying uh, no, but there's a but there's a loss of status, and people don't handle those well. Yeah, <laughs> and 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 we shouldn't assume that um, that everybody's rational. We shouldn't assume that anybody's rational, right? Yeah. Um, we shouldn't assume, you know, that there's a tendency to assume that security motives are always the most, uh, the, the sort of most important first explanation that we should reach for. Uh, and I'm just not sure that that's true. Um, and so, for instance, it strikes me that, you know, P Putin has talked about security, right? Putin has talked about NATO expansion posing a security threat. It strikes me that that could just be rhetoric covering another motive. Right. But IR right. scholars tend not to take that notion seriously. Right. Um, OK, so I see the distinction uh, you're making. So you're arguing um, you're arguing that, that your model actually works better uh, than than Mearsheimer's. And well, again, it's not explaining it's not, recent Russian in the last couple of decades. Yeah, of Russian behavior. And it's not, it's not my model. Right. It, this is a because my okay. model doesn't necessarily strictly apply to Russia, okay. but the sort of general notion that status concerns matter. OK. Which has been applied to Russia by all these other people. Yes. OK, um, so the distinction uh, we made between uh, a person kind of a, like, say, Putin identifying with Russia so strongly that this is all personal on the one hand mm -hmm. and domestic political incentives on the other, mm. um, that, that seems to me a kind of a subtle matter. And certainly both can be going on at once. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean. Mm -hmm. And, and there's and the and and the domestic considerations kind of subdivides into uh, you know Russians are authentically without any prompting from him reacting uh, and then he's he is uh, he follows that reaction that's one extreme mm. and the other one mm. is 
he kind of, uh, you know, because he does control the kind of TV media, he kind of manipulates, um, or at least he heavily influences. I don't really know the details, but uh, he kind of uh, uh, manipulates uh, their perception. And for that matter, look, uh, politicians in all countries try to manipulate perceptions to some extent. But, um, you know, and in this, and in this case, there are, uh, you know, ethnic Russians in Ukraine or, or kind of native Russian speaking people yeah. uh, who are in a conflict uh, and and uh, in, in a kind of a civil war situation. And the, the, the government has done things, I gather, like uh, reduce the role of the Russian language in schools and media, close some, you know, make it harder for some Russian language, uh, at least some Russian language media outlets to operate. So all of this, um, you know, on the on the one hand, you can imagine uh, just kind of uh, a, a response at the popular level uh, without orchestration. On the other hand, it's a convenient thing for him, especially if like his economy is not doing that great and so on. Yeah. You know, if he can stir this up, you would expect that to help him politically. Right. So I would think this all gets very complicated in the model. Right. The, the, the distinction among these things. I mean, you know, ultimately it's a so whether whether this is leader driven or leader reacting to important domestic constituencies driven is an empirical question. Right. And and so, again, I'm just going to have to say, uh, you know, I, I we don't have I don't I don't have enough knowledge and I don't think we have enough knowledge of the state of play in Russia to actually tell the difference. Right. Mm -hmm. um, I think. In some historical cases, you can make a better case, um, but in this case, it's just ongoing. It's 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 tough. Now, of, of course, the, and, and the, the the sort of diversionary uh, incentive that you mentioned that's kind of separate, right? Because that suggests that this is not ultimately about. That's a, a kind of a tangentially related um, literature, right? This notion that um, that leaders wag the dog, right? That um, and it's not it, you know. Uh, uh, Clinton Clinton was accused of doing this uh, mm -hmm. after the Lewinsky scandal broke, right? Uh, that leaders uh, provoke crises um, to uh, distract attention from domestic scandals or domestic crises. Uh, I think that's a slightly different dynamic. I think it can interact with status concerns. Um, it might be that sort of outstanding status ambitions or status gripes um, might prove useful to leaders who need to divert, right? Mm -hmm. um, that's possible, right? These are all kind of extensions of this of this very general model. Okay. Um, the uh, you mentioned that you get you know a couple of kinds of uh, I mean acting out is not the technical term I'm sure, but responses to <laughs> per, to perceived uh, status you know an asymmetry of of uh, status yeah. perception between you and the outside world. One of them is aggressive behavior. Yeah. Uh, we are arguably, I mean, we're definitely seeing aggressive behavior. It's arguably attributable to that dynamic. The other you said is uh, not accepting the world order. Now, mm -hmm. Putin gave a speech in 2007, the Munich conference speech. Are you familiar with that? When he, he kind of, uh, he complained like about the U.S.'s violation of international law and mm -hmm. the expansion of NATO. Mm -hmm. And it was a kind of a, he was, he was, he was kind of, I mean, he was kind of the subtext was almost like, you know, there's a world order I'm willing to live with, but the U.S. doesn't seem willing to. You know, the U.S. Yeah. is violating international law, which was true. Iraq invasion. I think fairly clearly Kosovo wasn't wasn't on the side of international law, that in, that intervention. Um, 
I, I wonder if you're conversant in that speech and have thought about it in your in terms of of your mind. And, and then and and then just to flesh this out, then in 2008, after he delivered a warning that got a certain amount of attention, George W. Bush convinces Europe that NATO has to promise uh, membership to Ukraine and Georgia. Yeah. So yeah. it was almost. I mean, talk about that a little like like that in your model, as opposed to maybe a realist model. So he gives this warning and Bush just gives him the back of his hand, basically. Right. I mean, that's you. That's kind of the natural perception. Yeah. Um, so I should say one thing, uh, which is that. Um, so the book, right, the, the sort of theory that's laid out in the book is about rising powers and. Right development of different kinds of revisionism. But uh, it is also true that um, hegemons can be revisionist. Uh, so I've done other work with, with some co-authors um, uh, that sort of thinks about, for instance, the United States as a revisionist. And, and so the U.S., right, It's at, that's absolutely right, especially under the Bush administration. The U.S. was a sort of um, clearly behaving as a revisionist, not I mean, and revisionist acceptance. means what trying to kind of change the rules or what? What exactly? Well, it can mean different things. So uh, a revisionist is just a, a state that wants to change something. Um, you can think about different kinds of revisionists. A distributive, what I call a distributive or positional revisionist, is a state that wants to shift some element of a distribution of resources in its favor, so territory, power, mm -hmm. right, wealth. Uh, and a normative revisionist is a state that wants to change something about the rules, right? So international institutions or norms, right? Um, what I write about in my book is this sort of convergence of these two kinds of revisionism, which I call radical revisionism. So these are states that are both dissatisfied with the distribution uh, of some uh, significant good and uh, uh, are dissatisfied with this, this sort of broader institutional order. Mm -hmm. uh, and I suggest in the book that, that these are, are quite dangerous states. But again, right, the, the point is uh, hegemon states at the top um, is an interesting phenomenon, but they can also become uh, quite dissatisfied and, and act uh, as if they were uh, as if they were revisionists. Now, the 2000, I mean, so so I'm not uh, super familiar with the 2007 speech. I, I have not uh, done that particular piece of homework uh, for this conversation. Um, but, uh, it, I mean, complicated, of course, right? Because Putin, as you mentioned, is right that the U.S. sort of behaving in ways that flout these rules. Uh, and I also think that it's right. Um, uh, uh, Anne Clunan uh, has a recent piece, right, for instance, that, um, uh, that suggests that, um, in fact, uh, Putin is not entirely opposed to the liberal international order. It just depends what you mean by that. Right. Right. If you mean sort of inst international institutions and kind of rules of the game that are applied um, kind of consistently, then, yeah, he's fine with that. If you mean sort of liberal democracy, then then he's not OK with this sort of spread of liberal right. democracy. He's yeah. not OK with that. Um, on the 2008, the, um, the, the promise to Georgia and Ukraine, um, how would I understand that? Yeah, I mean, I think you described it well. It's a, a, a sort of. Um, a slap in the face, uh, an insult, uh, a uh, yet another signal um, that Russia's sphere of influence is not being respected. Um, uh, now, wh whether that ultimately sort of convinces Putin that uh, he faces a kind of what I call in the book a status glass ceiling, that's very hard to say uh, at this point, but it can't. Have and helped. if you, in other words, uh, the world is imposing a ceiling on how high yeah. his his status will be recognized. And that's yeah. that's when you get 
things like, say, what he did in Georgia in 2008. I, I mean, yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, I, I'd like to talk a little about China and then move on Ooh. to, uh, you know, maybe one or two of the historical examples in your book. Sure. Um, uh, maybe in the meanwhile, another question about Russia will occur to me. But and if there's anything else you want to first, I mean, is there anything else you want to say about about Russia? From your perspective? Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> good. Uh, I mean, just good. I hope I, uh, I hope we've covered, you know, uh, the, the basics there. Um, so China rising power. Yeah. Uh, and so you you. Uh, the U.S. in relative economic terms, at least, a declining power, uh, mm. you know, um, and to, if you compare especially, well, GDP uh, between the two countries and even per capita GDP, there's a relative, I think, decline. Um, uh, and China is accordingly building up its military. How, how do you see this? How, you know, what what light does your your model shed on this? Yeah, so so. Basically, if we, we if we sort of understand China as a rising power and we understand China as a as a state that has outstanding status ambitions, uh, mm -hmm. unsatisfied status ambitions. And again, this is pretty common, uh, uh, a pretty common claim uh, that um, a lot of the things that China has done in the past couple of decades have been aimed at promoting its status. And it's not all aggressive. Right. Hosting the Olympics, um, certainly not about making money. It's about. It's about other stuff. And one of the things that hosting the Olympics gets you, in theory anyway, is, is an increase in, in status. Um, what my perspective suggests, uh, and there is a chapter in the book about China, uh, it's kind of a speculative chapter, um, is uh, that it's going to be, so dealing with China's status ambitions uh, is something that the U.S. will have to do in one way or another, and it's not going to be uh, something that is going to be fun. Um, it is going to be a, it is going to come down to a very difficult and painful decision, uh, and here's why. Um, so I think that um, there are people who have suggested that you can kind of accommodate China's status in kind of very superficial ways by inviting Chinese leaders to conferences, by having face-to-face uh, -face meetings with them, right? Just kind of treat them like they're important and you can buy them off. And I don't think that's right. I think that what China wants is what Russia wants, is what the U.S. has. Uh, and that is the trappings of great powerness. Uh, and in, in the book, I, I argue that this has to do uh, largely with the right to a, a sort of sphere of influence. Um, where the great powers um, got a right to intervene without okaying it with anyone else. Um, that's arguably what Russia wants in its near abroad. That's uh, arguably the U.S. has that um, all over the world. Uh, and um, that is, uh, I think, what China wants in uh, the South and East China Seas. Um, and what this means is, that the maintenance of U.S. primacy, if we understand that to mean the persistence of forward-deployed American troops um, just off China's shore, is going to be inconsistent with that claim. 
and so this means that you're either uh, going to be in for a protracted period of, of kind of conflict, not necessarily open conflict, but uh, conflict uh, mm -hmm. between a rising status dissatisfied and potentially um, radically revisionist China at some point uh, and the United States, or the U.S. is going to have to downsize its global footprint in East Asia, uh, which would mean um, which would mean very painfully uh, ab abandoning security commitments um, that we have there. I, I think, especially Taiwan. Oh yeah, well, Taiwan is kind of a special case because we ourselves have acknowledged uh, historically that it's not exactly like a regular sovereign country, and there is a special issue involving China there. But um, but I mean, if you say if you look at something like Japan or. South Korea, I, I don't think you're suggesting that China wants to actually invade those no, countries. No, 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 no. It, it, it's 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 not about uh, sort of actually invading those countries. It is rather about um, uh, it is rather about exercising its own primacy in that area, which I think is inconsistent with the maintenance of right. I mean, this is this is the whole conflict between. Um, air sea battle. I actually don't. It's called joint joint concept for command of the commons mm -hmm. or something like that. Right now, and uh, what's what's known as AAAD. Right, China has been developing the military capabilities to make it difficult for the United States to operate offshore. And that's prompting a response from the U.S. and on and on and on. Right. Um, so uh, my perspective suggests that um, what's implicated here is not just security concerns, but also status concerns. Mm. That having a global hegemon sort yeah. of dominating that region. Yeah. yeah. Because I've got to say, I have kind of wondered in this in the just national security model, what exactly the argument about is about in a certain sense. Because I, I, I think what you, you know, what you're suggesting is that uh they don't want US ships in there off their, you know, you know, in their neighborhood, damn it. And it's pretty, not pretty like much. they want that because they want to change the rules fundamentally. In other words, they want freedom of navigation, right? Freedom of commercial navigation is in their interest. They trade a lot, right? Yeah. I, I mean, in other words, is there a is there a clear, real security reason they don't want ships off their waters? Now, of course, uh, the answer occurs to me as I ask the question, countries tend to be a little on the paranoid side. I mean, we, uh, you know, the U.S. is complaining about China maybe establishing uh, a military base in Africa, for God's sake, right? Mm -hmm. uh, not an immediate threat, exactly. You know, countries just tend to have, um, uh, you know, higher sensitivity on this front than, than may seem justified in national security terms from abroad. But uh, in other words, is there a distinction? Do, do you think the realists don't do a great job of predicting what China is asking for? in the in the in the nearby waters <clears throat> i mean which realists There's well i right i mean there and i don't really know the territory well enough to say i guess yeah. but uh, uh we we can skip the question i mean is there anything at all you want to so so you're saying um so i'll just say i'll just say let me just add one 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 thing here so so uh, two things two things um I've, i i mean i find the so I find the the notion that that China would be threatened by um, uh, by the U.S. Navy uh, being uh, enforced off its shore quite pl plausible and reasonable, right? I mean, I mm -hmm. think the U.S. The U.S. would be similarly threatened if sure if there were permanent Chinese or Russian naval installations 
in the Med- in the in, sorry, in the Gulf in the Gulf yeah. of Mexico. Um, on the other hand, <clears throat> um, uh, there are certain security benefits uh, uh, to um, uh, the the presence of uh, large numbers of American troops in Japan and South Korea. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that is that um, those countries are disincentivized from securing themselves, right? And so what that means is that maybe, and this is kind of part of the theory behind um, uh, some of the sort of arguments for deep engagement, Bill Walforth, Bill Walforth, Bill Walforth has written with John Eikenberry, who I think was on the show, right? Uh, Eikenberry is not a realist, but he and Walforth came together to write this sort of defense of deep engagement. Um, uh, basically, the idea is this, this sort of uh, the U.S. security blanket, right? That the, the U.S. Uh, has you know thirty thousand troops in Korea and tens of thousands of troops in Japan, and what that means is that these countries don't need to worry about arming themselves, mm-hmm. uh, and that might mean that you get um, uh, you get a you have a lower probability of regional arms races turning into conflicts, right? And that's mm-hmm. good for China, right? The the other thing I wanted to to, to mention is just this. Um, so this issue related to freedom of navigation, right? And so it's, it strikes me that uh, this is not obviously about security, at least from the U.S.'s perspective. Um, so these freedom of navigation uh, operations, these phone ops, right, where where the U.S. drives a ship through uh, uh, a piece of uh, a part of the ocean that China claims uh, as its own, right, in contravention of, of the UNCLOS, the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea, um, and 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 what's it doing, right? Uh, nothing. Uh, it's sort of like your your little brother said, "You can't touch me," and and you're just you just says, "Don't touch me," and you say, "Like touch, touch, touch," right? That's really all it's doing. Um, that and like raising the risk of uh, an unintended escalation of a crisis. Yeah. Um. So the uh, I, I I guess I guess what seems to be the case is. You know, realists tend to say, look, China, as it rises, is going to want more and more control over its neighborhood. Uh, You are reinforcing that prediction, basically. Your model, to some extent, converges with the realist model and saying, yeah, you better figure out how you want to respond to this because the problem's not going away. Yeah, I would I would say I would say some realists. Right. Mearsheimer. Yes. Mearsheimer. Would predict that as China gets more powerful, it will try to dominate its region. I, not all realists, right? Defensive realists don't necessarily think that. Okay. Um, and and I think the main distinction is the model of how um, U.S. reactions might influence Chinese behavior, right? Where my model is is sort of uh, interested in um, psycho- social psychology, emotions, and domestic politics, and suggests that sometimes. Um, uh, foreign policy behavior might be what we'd call irrational and realist. Uh, uh, so, for instance, a, a, a realist might say the, the proper approach here is uh, to strengthen the U.S. capacity, um, U.S. military capacity in East Asia, because that'll deter the Chinese. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I would maybe, but it might also produce these kinds of sort of destructive dynamics that I write about in the book. Okay, um, I'm wondering uh, is the uh, you know one thing China complains about is the U.S. raising human rights issue, most notably the Uyghurs, yeah. perhaps yeah. Um, Hong Kong in a different way. Um, is that is that perceived as a, as a status 
question? Or... I think it has been. Yeah, I think mm-hmm. it, I think it certainly has been. Um, and again, like this. Um, so if you were trying to accommodate China, you would you would want to not raise those issues. Well, that seems clear. I mean, they're yeah. telling us that and they seem to mean it. But yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, but 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 you see it as to some extent an expression of status consciousness. Um, I think that China, China has Chinese leaders have seen uh, this as an ex, as an expression of uh, as an indication that their status is not being taken seriously. Right. Right. The, uh, do you have any thoughts on the psychology of Xi Jinping, possibly compared to the psychology of Vladimir Putin? He comes off as a pretty cool operator, to me at least. You know, it's like there are things that really bothered them, but he didn't personally throw a fit. It's like he, yeah. like when Blinken uh, and I guess Jake Sullivan went over to China at the beginning of the Biden administration, they got real blowback. But that was clearly kind of, you know, when they raised human rights issues and so on. But that clearly was kind of planned and orchestrated. Xi Jinping didn't get involved. It's like their foreign minister is supposed to give us a dressing down. Those are, you know, uh, do you have any any armchair psychology thoughts about Xi Jinping versus? Putin? No. And I no, I try to stay out of armchair psychology. Um, but uh, yeah. So, no, I don't I don't have any special insights. Uh, and again, I, I, I just would highlight the possibility that both Xi Jinping and Putin could very well be manipulating emotional responses strategically. It could, that could be the case. Mm-hmm. Right. Now it seems to me, um, you know, uh, on the other side of the table, there's America's conception of the status it, des- yeah. it deserves. And, and it seems that Russia and China are kind of different cases because after the cold war, if the U S you know, what the people who criticize American policy after the Cold War toward Russia are saying is all you had to do is not expand NATO. You didn't have to shrink yeah. NATO. Yeah. Uh, whereas with with China, you're saying, no, we're going to have to shrink our presence if if we don't want certain kinds of friction that that may or may not lead to trouble. Right. Mm-hmm. Those are I mean, first of all, those are just, I'm just pointing out there's a difference there. But also uh, this the status considerations today, in your mind, they apply equally to how America handles these things. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, and I think that um, there is actually uh, I was just reading something actually for a, a class that I'm that I'm teaching uh, uh, about the um, the sort of social psychology of exceptionalism. Right. So, you know, American exceptionalism is a is a right. This notion that the U.S. Mm. is kind of exempt from historical rules, special somehow. Right. Um, uh, that this reinforces the um, uh, uh, the notion of uh, the imp- kind of importance of being at the top in terms of status. Uh, and there are reasons to think that being at the top might make you more sensitive to status loss, right? Mm-hmm. So it actually might make you more prone to overreacting to things that seem to be um, threats to your to your status. Uh, and um, there are, I, I think, there's a plausible reading of the Iraq War uh, that is um, a kind of a reaction to a perception of uh, threatened or lost status. Yeah, a kind of yeah. like like who do you think you are to 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 be blowing up our buildings? Yeah, you're just a ragtag bunch of terrorists, and and we're the United States, and and we need to show the world how big and tough we are. Yeah. Which that itself could have other that that could have that could have realist explanations. It could. 
Um, but uh, so anyway, there is a there's a there's a you know, it's funny. I was just talking to somebody. Uh, I think it was part of the recording of a show that hasn't aired yet. But he was saying, you know, Bill Clinton, after he was president, said, you know, America, um, it's inevitable that it have suffer that it experienced a relative decline in power. So it is in its interests to try to reinforce the rules of the road, international law and so on. You know, if, if you're no longer going to be the king of the jungle, you don't want it to be a jungle. But he, according to, to the person I was talking to, Clinton never said it while he was president because he, it would have been political suicide. And in fact, he never said it after this. This was 2003, I think. And, mm. and he said people say, even then said, oh, you can't say that. Right. Yeah. So. This is about, you know, uh, kind of just accepting uh, parts of American status psychology as just fixed in cement. Right. They can't be altered. Any politician uh, messes with them to his or her peril. Right. Like like that's the, in other words, the, the, the advice Clinton was being given to not talk this way was advice about how to handle America's status. Yeah, psychology. that's right. That's right. Yeah, I think that's right. And and obviously that's uh, unfortunate uh, and uh, and quite dangerous, right? Because um, it might be the case that if you think that decline, material decline is inevitable, the best way to manage it is to plan far in advance uh, and to make sure that you don't have these um, hotspots, uh, these crisis centers blowing up as a result of friction with rising powers. Um, and, um, uh, your own kind of status complexes are going to get in the way of that sort of long-term management. Mm -hmm. So let's, let's talk about, uh, some of the historical examples in your, yeah. in your book, uh, as for Weimar psychology, it seems kind of clear cut, right? I mean, I mean, Hitler very explicitly talked about how Germany was not being respected, its its former greatness had been lost. I, I think Putin Hitler comparisons are overdrawn, but there yeah. is that in common, right? Yeah, and I think you know I, I didn't in the book. I really didn't get into Hitler's psychology. Um, I, I I just didn't want to touch it. But, but yeah, I'm the, not the even talking about his psychology per se. I'm talking about the appeals right. he was making yes, to his people. He was, and they were popular on the right. Right. And the argument in the book is that by the late by the late 20s, early 30s, um, those arguments had contributed to the Nazis becoming the largest conservative party in, in Germany, the largest right wing party in Germany, which is in a, like obviously a precondition for Hitler becoming chancellor. Mm -hmm. um, this, the conventional wisdom there is uh, if we had treated Germany differently after World War One, there might not have been such a big problem. If the victorious allies had laid down different terms of peace and, and otherwise behaved differently, there might not have, uh, you know, I mean, Hitler was probably going to be Hitler. I don't I, I don't know. But but I mean, there might not have been so much popular support for his message. Is That's that, right. Yeah, I, I think the, I think that right. Um, that the problem with Versailles was that it, it tried to cut a middle path between um, punishing Germany, like sort of, you know, making sure that Germany physically could not challenge the status quo again ever, and um, uh, and uh, 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 appeasing Germany, and it didn't, and it didn't do either, right? So it it treated Germany like a pariah state mm -hmm. without imposing on it 
the kinds of burdens that you would want to impose on it in order to make sure that it could never again challenge the European status quo. Mm-hmm. And then the, you know, I think pretty much standard view is that after World War II, we had kind of learned that lesson and, you know, the Marshall Plan and so on. Mm-hmm. We, we did not uh, inflict humiliation on Germany or or punishing economic penalties. And and that worked mm-hmm. out better. Is that is that that's is that that's yeah, the way I mean, you, I mean, you see you see that as post-World War Two, we handled status issues better. Well, I, I don't know. I mean, I don't I don't write about this in the book. The post post World War II Germany is not in the book. But my 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 sense would be that the occupation of Germany was far more comprehensive after the after the Second World War. Um, and yeah, maybe the status issues were dealt with differently. I haven't really thought about that. That's interesting. Mm-hmm. But the but I, obviously, like Germany's occupied pretty comprehensively by multiple great powers mm-hmm. uh, after the Second World War for a time. That's true. That's true. Um, okay. Uh, the um, and then pre World War One Germany. How does that? Yeah. How does that play out? Yeah. So, so the argument there is that um, what the status that Germany wants is world power status, Weltpolitik, um, and um, they. Uh, so this this kind of means equality with with uh, Great Britain. Uh, and one of the things that they want is for the British to sort of recognize that they count in the same category by kind of taking their interests seriously around the world and in, and especially by kind of recognizing that Germany has a right to naval equality. And that's something that the British were not willing to do. Uh, and this is a case where you where you do see, you know, the Kaiser Wilhelm II is his psychology is quite interesting. And um, and he's. It's evidence that he's quite angry on a number of occasions at the British uh, for these slights um, and um, uh, that this contributes by 1912, 1913 uh, to a determination to challenge the European status quo, the European balance of powers, sort of drive for European hegemony, uh, rather than competing for uh, sort of world power status, which which involved kind of empire building and, and naval competition. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, the, uh, and then Japan now, mm. uh, so we'll, we'll talk about that a, a little, uh, this is the, um, this is during what, during what period are you, are you focusing on Japan? So, uh, early 1930s, uh, so that the case study of Japan goes back into the late 19th century. Basically, um, the story is that. Uh, Japan uh, wants to be a Western great power, right? It wants to be sort of a full, um, a full member of the great power club with all the rights that come along with that. Uh, and um, uh, over time, it becomes clear that that's not going to be possible, and that this has to do with race. Um, that the Japanese are not treated uh, in the same way as white European great powers, hmm. um, and and the U.S. obviously, right? Um, and uh, that by the uh, early 1930s, uh, this leads uh, to um, uh, this leads to um, a, a, a number of Japanese policymakers and um, uh, and domestic groups to conclude that Japan can't be treated fairly uh, within the sort of Western world order. Uh, and um, the instantiation of this that I focus on most in the book is Japan's withdrawal from the League of Nations. Uh, after the um, after the Mukden incident and the start of the the war in Manchuria, so w- 
what led Japan to perceive that it wouldn't be allowed to join the club? What, what did it take as the big signs of disrespect? So <clears throat> there were a number over over the preceding decades. Uh, so there were sort of immigration disputes, um, especially with the United States, but also with, say, Australia um, over uh, the, the kind of treatment of Japanese immigrants in these countries. Right. Um, in some cases, um, uh, these were policies implemented by states. For instance, California passed a law in 1913, uh, that banned Japanese from owning land that pissed the Japanese off. Um, there were um, uh, a kind of other disputes over immigration um, that made the Japanese uh, kind of nervous about their status within uh, the Western world order. Um, so much so that in 19, uh, after, in the years after, the, after World War I, uh, the Japanese uh, went to the, uh, the Paris Peace Conference and demanded that a racial equality clause be written into the League of Nations Charter, the Paris Peace Treaty, uh, the, sorry, the Treaty of Versailles, and um, it wasn't. Uh, Wilson, Woodrow Wilson um, made sure that it wasn't. Um, he had diplomatic reasons to do that. He had domestic political reasons to do that. Um, uh, but it wasn't written in, and that was another kind of sort of piece of evidence against, um, against the kind of Western world order. Um, uh, the uh, Washington Naval Conference in the early 20s um, gave Japan, uh, put sort of officially put Japan on a lower level uh, mm -hmm. than the British and the Americans. Um, I have my I have my book right here, actually. This is the cover of the book. Yeah, so that's, now that's a, oh, wait, explain the cover. So, yeah, so you've the got punch five, cartoon five, that, three, and oh, so this oh is, is that a cartoon from Punch? It's, it's a cartoon from Punch. This is John Bull. This is Uncle Sam. And this is a Japanese sailor here. And for the uh, audio listeners, they are sitting on the digits, respectively, five, five, and three. And so this was the naval tonnage ratio that was written into the Washington Naval <laughs> Treaty. So the Japanese got three tons for every five tons that the Americans and the British got. That didn't make them happy. And then the kind of last straw was uh, after the Mukden incident, the League of Nations kind of investigated what had happened. Uh, and rejected Japan's claims about having acted in self-defense. Of course, J Japan hadn't acted in self-defense. It, it precipitated the, the attack. Mm -hmm. um, uh, but um, this led to rage, outrage, uh, and to a determination to leave the League of Nations. And do you have a view on kind of, you might say, how long historical memory is? So, for example, with China... Um, you you hear sometimes that you know uh, this goes back to the opium wars, the imposition of of Britain's power on China mm. and and so on. And uh, uh, is that is that kind of part of your your model that, that that yes, countries like people remember slights from long ago and act accordingly? Yeah, it 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 it, it can be. I, I would say it's not formally part of the model, but it, it absolutely can be a contributing factor. I, I think that the answer to the question of how long historical memory is, is, is not one that can be answered generally because it, it depends on what kinds of stories people are telling, mm -hmm. right? Um, uh, and, and that's going to determine how long the hist historical memory is. Um, there are other people who have done work on um, uh, not interspatial uh, status comparisons, but rather temporal status comparisons. So right. status dissatisfaction can be driven not by the notion that I 
don't have enough status relative to you, uh, but that I don't have enough status relative to a past self that had more status. Right. Right. So that's an, it's another area of status research. Yep. Uh, that seems like a real thing, at least in individual human psychology. Mm -hmm. Um, Okay, well, is there anything else you want to say about any of this, the book or Russia or uh, anything? No, I. Uh, this has been a, obviously it's a terrible day, but this has been a nice conversation. So. Yeah, okay, well, uh, let's uh, remind people in the name of the book, Status and the Challenge of Rising Powers by Stephen Ward, which is you, uh, Cambridge University Press. Are you on Twitter? Do you have any, any other thing you want to... Uh, uh, I am on Twitter. What's your um, handle? Boy, I can't even remember. I don't tweet very much. Ah, you Most, must mostly it's it's pictures of food. Um, uh, hash uh, at Stephen underscore M underscore Ward is me on Twitter. That's Stephen with a V. Yes. Um, and uh, and I'm at Robert Writer W R I G H T E R and uh, and write stuff in the non-zero newsletter. Uh, well, thanks so much, uh, Stephen. I, I I think you know it, it's a your perspective makes sense to me uh, based on the behavior of both individuals and nations. So, and that's, and that's, I guess all you'd ask. Um, awesome. Thank you. All right. Thank you.